You are listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the United States. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them and the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community, relationships, and the land. Welcome back to another episode of Regeneration Rising. I'm Taylor Mulia, and today my guest is Michelle Hughes. She is the Operations and Impact Director at the National Young Farmers Coalition. Should sound familiar. We had a couple of guests in a fellowship a couple episodes back. Michelle has worked at the organization for a number of years, and in her spare time, she actually works on the Equity Commission at the USDA. So very fascinating person. I thought this conversation was really interesting for any young agrarians who are considering, I don't know, jumping into a nonprofit job for a little while or jumping into policy work or sort of doing something else really related to agriculture, but not necessarily production. And I also thought it was really cool just to get a perspective on how policy and even inside of an organization, um, things change and culture changes. So I'm so thankful to have Michelle on the podcast and thankful to have you here. I hope you enjoy. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. If you wouldn't mind, I would love to hear more about your background. Where did you grow up? Where do you live now? And tell us a little bit about your journey, your childhood. My name is Michelle Hughes. I work at an organization called the National Young Farmers Coalition. We are a federal policy advocacy organization that works on behalf of young farmers. I currently live in just outside Washington, D.C., in Crystal City in Arlington, Virginia, working here now and living on Anacostan land here in just outside DC. I am from a small city in Connecticut called New Haven. It's a, a small place in New England and not really agriculture focused, but when I grew up, I had always had this interest in working with animals. And so veterinary medicine was the path that I chose to do that. I went to college and, you know, just learned a lot more about the about animal welfare and its place in environmental science and land stewardship. And that was really interesting to me. And so I kind of kept with it, but wanted to explore the idea of working with livestock and farm animals. And so I took a job at the University of Pennsylvania. They have a large animal facility about an hour away from Philly that does livestock and large animal production. So I did that. And then I went to grad school. In between, I had met the Young Farmers Coalition as a farmer. I went to a conference in Pennsylvania the just before I stopped farming. It's widely known as PASA, Pennsylvania Sustainable Agriculture Conference, and Young Farmers was tabling there. And so I kind of was trying to get involved with a community that, that had some commonalities with the folks in the community. And so I, I started working with Young Farmers. And getting a graduate degree at NYU in food studies around the same time. And so this was just before the last farm bill, the 2018 farm bill. So I was doing some organizing. But once I finished my degree, I switched to 
the federal policy team and did some work there. I kind of want to go into more about your work on the 2018 Farm Bill. It was kind of a transition for you to go from studying at a university and then being a farmer, kind of wrapping your head around things, and then actually being on the ground and doing that work and having those conversations in a really formal way. What was that like? And what surprised you when you started working closer with the Farm Bill? I mean, at first it was really intimidating. I definitely felt like I was a fish out of water a little bit, I guess. Because the Farm Bill is like the largest piece of legislation that we get in in our world. And so it felt really big to me and like to be responsible for, for some of the outcomes potentially. And the Farm Bill felt really like a lot. So definitely that. But I think the transition was was a really meaningful one because for me, just like being from a farmer to like an advocate, because I didn't really know that there was a place for me. I you know, I feel like my background, I'm from a place in New Haven, Connecticut is a place where like, there's definitely a difference in like, some people that have and people that don't. And so there's like a big class gap uh, in the state that I'm from. And I feel like it was always something that I had thought about, but I had never really had a way to like, address some of those things. And so I, I just learned in that transition that there was like a place for advocacy and social justice. Gen more generally. So I had always had these feelings that I didn't really know what to do with or like what kind of career I could have. Um, so I just followed what I was passionate about, which was animals. But this really gave me like a way to pivot away from something that didn't really feel like it was going to be giving me energy the way that this was. And so the transition definitely enlightened me to paths that I didn't even know existed. When you were studying and when you were younger, you didn't really see yourself doing policy work. That's not something that you were ever um, tuned into before. No, I mean I had done, <laughs> I had done like a little bit of advocacy, I think, and like going to marches and protests, and you know I had been a part of some organizing efforts, and I didn't really have the language for what was happening, so I was a little bit on the other side. But no, I never imagined that I would be someone that was like organizing roundtables between farmers who like are advocating for themselves and Congress people and senators was not something that I thought was accessible. No, I felt very far from the federal government at all times before that. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your transition from working in that sort of roundtable, like on the ground role, and then really jumping on to NYFC? So my roundtable organizing was for young farmers. Before we had, now we have so many fellowships. I can't, I can barely keep track of them, honestly. Most, and then we didn't really have a lot of fellowships. And so I think that I was actually maybe the first young farmers fellow. Yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> this is back when this is back when there were like 10 people working at the organization. We're now a staff of like 43. So I think that I just had no idea, you know, we had called it a fellowship and it was a fellowship of one. So I, it, you know, it was like a year long that I had worked on the round tables with young farmers. But anyway, so that's not the question you asked, but. <laughs> no, but it's a good it's a good way of understanding like how fellowships evolved and like yeah you were kind of just doing it and then we're like oh this should be a thing we should start allowing other people to do this makes a lot of sense it gives you a lot of practice and context and experience yeah yeah but I think that young farmers just was definitely the catalyst for all of this and you know reading our mission statement now 
I look at it and I'm like, this is what happened to me. <laughs> now I work at Young Farmers and in a very different way. But yeah, so the anyway, the transition to working from an organizing to policy was another shift because those worlds are very much connected and like need each other heavily, I think for both sides to be successful, but they are definitely different approaches and working in policy requires you to have patience that in organizing is, you know, we use the motivation for change as the fuel And so to put that with something that requires so much patience and celebration of very incremental change, which is just like how policy is, what we've seen historically, that's that's what it how it is. And so those were really hard for me to reconcile with and are hard hard for organizers today to reconcile with, I think. Like I think it this is like, you know, it was it was definitely a challenge. But at that time, I definitely was not as like, you know, the organizing work that I see happening at our organization now, it's a different scale. We, you know, as I mentioned, the fellowship's a different scale. You know, we, it was a, a fellow of one I was organizing just in the Hudson Valley in New York. We organize across the country now. So it was it was just a different time. But to answer your question, in, in whole, moving to federal policy, I think, started the trajectory of me moving from different parts of the organization, I continued to change departments after that. And I think learning all the pieces of this puzzle and like our mission has actually been really valuable as well. I didn't know that then, but. Yeah, you were in the middle of an organization being formed. You were like in that soup phase where you're, everyone's kind of looking at each other and like, where do we go? How many, how big do we want this to be? What are our, what's our vision? And and yeah, that brings me to my next question. I've been a member of NYFC about my local chapter for quite a while, and I noticed a huge transition happen in the larger national organization to address social inequity. And that has been a huge shift. And a lot of that that work that happened because you kind of, you pushed a lot of this stuff along with some other folks, I'm sure, but like you were there for it and you were helping push that along. Tell us more about that. What were some of the lessons you took from that experience? I definitely have to just name that there were so many people that worked at Young Farmers before I even started like my fellowship at Young Farmers that really like did the hard work that made it possible for the progress that I feel like I've made to even ex- to even happen. And so, yeah, I just want to name that there were like just a body of people before me, including our previous executive director, Sophie Ackoff, Michelle L. Hughes, not to be confused with me, Mai Wen, Sarah Black, Kate Greenberg, all people that I really looked up to when I first came to Young Farmers to kind of show me the way. Um, And so anyway, to answer your question, though, I mean, I think the yeah, we underwent a pretty big transition internally and externally as well in some ways. And, you know, when I was working in federal policy, working on the federal policy team, at the time we had state policy, which is why I keep saying federal policy, we don't do as much state work anymore. And so when I was on the policy team, I will say, you know, it wasn't the same policy work that we do now. People in general, this was pre-2020, so people in general were not having conversations about race in, in policy deliberations the way that 
we are now, particularly the way that USDA is having them. We were talking to a lot of folks back then that I couldn't really be super transparent about the fact that like we were facing barriers in our community of young farmers because of their identity. And so I found that really difficult because I share that identity in some ways. Like I share a lot of identities with other folks that I'm in coalition with. And so it was hard for me. And, you know, we had come up with this plan, sort of a proposal for like a racial equity program at Young Farmers that we decided to turn more into like an initiative. And so we really tried to make it something that was dispersed across the entire organization. So I became equity and organizational change manager when we got new leadership, Sophie and Martine, Sophie Akoff and Martine Lemos. We had new leadership fall 2019 around that time. It was around the time that I had these feelings and I had submitted this proposal to them and we just kind of turned it into a job. There is a blog post on the Young Farmers website from around that time that explains like, what is an equity and organizational change manager? And like, what are we doing? And what is the racial equity transformation? That was the racial equity transformation, as we called it, started happening just before strategic planning. And so we did an impact assessment in 2020 that was followed by a strategic planning process in 2021. So everyone was pretty prepped to like make plans for the next five years that were really equity forward was our goal. And the accountability report, I will let you all read it yourselves and decide if that goal was met or not. But it highlights the things that we worked on, places that we saw successes and places that we might maybe need to still do some more work. And so that was, I don't know, came out early 2021. I mean, I'm sure everybody does, but were you learning as you were going? Because it's that's a really huge strategic shift and sort of like making sure everybody's on board and a lot of communication, a lot of cooperation. Was was that a, a hard time for you? Like, because I know a lot of other organizations are doing similar things. And I'm just trying to, trying to, you know, like yeah. sympathize and, and like, you know, have this <laughs> sort of shared struggle. Like it is, it is not an easy shift. So yeah. What you're naming is like the, is kind of a little bit of like, I think what people refer to as like the movement, you know, and like the feelings and the movement for racial equity, at least in ag specifically for us. But I think it was hard because it was also a pandemic. Like, oh, yeah, we, you know, like I think that added a complexity to it, but it also added an intensity because people were like, now more than ever, we need to like, understand what we need to focus on, you know? Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of pressure on the racial equity work and the strategic planning process to like really show up in that, in that way, just because of like the race consciousness that we saw in the media in 2020, because of the effects of the pandemic on the most marginalized communities, we felt a lot of pressure to really kind of make plans that would actually be impactful. It was hard and it was really stressful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it was also a lot of fun to explore ideas that truly have no model. And I think that in some ways that's why when in this work we all are kind of figuring it out as we go. There now don't get me wrong, there are people who have a very sophisticated and formalized 
idea of how to institutionalize racial equity in nonprofits. People do this professionally. I'm not trying to like downplay that. Right. And we had a lot of guidance from those people throughout this process. So I don't want to like illegitimize anything, but there truly are no models that work for every your unique situation. You know, I think the key is really paying attention to the people that are in your community. For us, that was staff, our farmers, partner organizations, you know, I mean, the you know, the people that are like really in close coalition with us. So yeah, I think that was the beauty of that as well. And there was a lot that came out of taking some accountability for what's happened. The accountability report really just kind of lays out you know, a very honest picture of what our organization's impact has been like and how we intend to change that. And in a way that also honors the work that we have accomplished. I think some really cool things have come out of the work that we've done. There's a lot of tools that we offer other organizations now, just in partnership. It's not very formal, but we have salary guidelines that we, you know, work on with other orgs. And there are other organizations that reach out to even want to write their own version of an accountability report. So that's been a really huge reward for me. That brings me to my next question is, you're the operations and impact director right now at at NYFC. What does that look like? And what's your favorite part of your job? It's fun. I mean, operations is, I like it. It's not for everyone. But one strategic planning, you know, once you have the plan, you move into this implementation phase where you start putting all your plans to work and then you just monitor your progress over time. And that is probably my favorite part of being in the position that I'm in because as operations and impact director, I work on ops. So that's like everything from, you know, your more traditional human resources. We have a large part of our ops work is culture and our organizational values upholding that work. I also oversee some tech So that's kind of my ops role. But the impact part is really an accountability and evaluation to the strategic plan. I really like all the work I do, but I really like thinking big picture about the impact that we're having. I feel really fortunate that I'm like in a seat that I get to monitor that and also like talk to people about our culture and about our hiring processes and about new software that could help streamline things. I know some people probably find that fun. I can't be the only one. (laughs) yeah well yeah Um, yeah yeah but I feel honestly Taylor like I have a really cool job at a really unique organization so Mm -hmm. yeah I like most of the things that I do during the day I think we're busy we're always busy but I I really like my job We, we do cool work that's great yeah so you also serve on the Equity Commission at the USDA, as if you didn't have enough to do, um, <laughs> appointed by the Secretary of Agriculture. Can you tell us more about that position and what are your goals working with USDA on the Equity Commission? Yeah, the Equity Commission is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's There's a lot to it. So yeah, outside of my young farmer's role, I serve, I should say a little bit more about the Equity Commission before I jump too far in. So the Equity Commission is a body that was appointed by the secretary. It's about 15 people on the like governing body. And then there are two subcommittees. So there is a subcommittee on agriculture. I have a seat on that subcommittee. So that's my placement within this structure. 
And then there is a subcommittee on rural and economic development. I think they updated the name of it, actually. But they are focusing on things like natural resources, climate, housing, those kinds of things. So we really focus on agriculture specifically on the Ag Subcommittee. But all of these pieces work very closely together. So that's just a little bit of background on the structure of how this is set up. And we have quarterly public meetings. So you, anyone can go on the Equity Commission website on USDA and watch any of the quarterly meetings that we have. The last one was just a few weeks ago in Arkansas, actually. The subcommittee, the Ag Subcommittee has like a very specific set of goals that are also located on the Equity Commission's website, but I'm just really interested in in really trying to meet those that really can advance the work for equity at USDA. I think, you know, I, as a young farm, as a former young farmer, I have a vested interest in the interests of young farmers and like our success. And so I have really focused my time on the Equity Commission Ag Subcommittee working on land and climate recommendations, but we have worked on a number of recommendations that are probably soon to be published to the public in like an interim report. I think there are about 30 recommendations or so that we voted on at the last public meeting. And all of them are about some, in some way about racial equity. And many of them will have a material benefit for farmers, young farmers included. So I, yeah, I think I'm just really, really interested in us meeting the goals of the subcommittee and just accountability to the recommendations that are being submitted and that hopefully will eventually be implemented. We're only one step in. It's not, you know, they don't just pass and then they happen. Like I said, policy is incremental, but it's a start. The Equity Commission feels, it feels good. It feels generative. It feels like there's really strong people involved. Um, really strong people selected. So, and I'm just honored to be a part of it, honestly. Do you have any like particular policies that you're excited about? Yeah. I mean, I'm excited about all of them. There are some really big changes we can make. And I think what's interesting about the equity commission is that we're doing this work, but it's one piece in like a much larger uh, body of work that USDA is executing on. So they like simultaneously are releasing, you know, these new programs. Taylor, we talked about it a little bit, but I'm really excited about the increasing land market access program that's granting like $300 million to organizations for that work on land access. So I feel really excited about that. You know, Young Farmers, the organization is putting in like a great deal of effort to get a development team going to help organizations in our network fill out the federal grant application or offer other forms of development support as needed. So I just feel really excited about that. It's like a rapid response project that we've been able to move on. And it's just nice that we have the capacity to actually support, you know, the access for young farmers to USDA programming, or at least organizations that, you know, will transfer land the way that we want it to be. And this is also another question I'm just keep thinking of because I'm very curious about your transition from farming into in academia and then farming kind of and then and then coming into a really 
structural role inside of a nonprofit and doing a lot of policy work and working with the federal government. How is that for you? Do you have do you have any connection to farming still? Do you make time for that? How do you how, how do you sort of balance those those passions? I wish I had more time on farms to be honest, but I've felt that way since I stopped farming. So <laughs> anyway, but I mostly, so Young Farmers has as a staff benefit, we have farm field days. So I really just try to utilize my farm field days to volunteer on farms here in DC. There are a ton of women black owned farms in the DC area. So I try to just keep in touch with like my local farmers. And like, I spend a lot of time at the farmer's market talking to people and just like getting to know their produce, especially the livestock farmers in Virginia, just like some cool people. I just can't help but talk to young farmers when I meet them. <laughs> so I feel like every story is a little bit more knowledge, honestly. And anyway, so yeah, I mostly volunteer on farms and once in a while we'll do like a presentation on a farm and I'll, I'll try to stay for a little bit after to like actually see the place. So I'm a visitor right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard. Cause it's like, you know, you live in, you live in kind of a pretty urban environment, don't you? Yeah. It certainly feels that way. Being in like Northern Virginia, I have access to a lot more farms, what people would consider a traditional farm, but in DC, there are a lot of urban farming efforts though. Even rooftop, it's pretty impressive. At some point, you're talking about farming so much, and it is something that you really enjoy yourself. So at some point, you have to get back into the, yeah, you know, get some know. poop on your boots and your hands in the soil at some point again, you know, refresh your passion for yeah. this. I don't think it, <laughs> it's funny because farm policy, like farm policy folks didn't start by being farm policy folks. They probably started being farmers and and then pulling them away from that can can feel hard sometimes. Yeah, I definitely miss it. I definitely miss it. And I think that there are actually a lot more opportunities now than there were when I was looking to farm in 2017. So yeah, I mean, I don't think it's, it's uh, not not in my future. I think about it. But it's hard. It's hard. It's why why I do the work I do, because it's really hard. So I just want to do my best to make sure that I have everything that I need. And also that like, I'm, I'm invested in the work that I do. And I think I, I could become very invested in farming again. I wanted to finish by asking, what is one misconception young agrarians might have about ag policy? And I guess two last questions. <laughs> How might they learn more and get involved in a small way? I would say the biggest misconception is probably that there isn't a place for you. Ag policy is a world that is dominated by folks that look different than the young farmer population and are probably quite a little bit older than we are. And so, you know, it can feel really intimidating like it did to me, but it's a misconception because actually the ag industry needs innovation. We need change. We need things to move and we need people to like stand behind the leaders that we have that are doing it and to support the folks that are here because what where we're getting to now the the issues that we're facing now like it's exhausting and some of us 
like there's some parts of the work that are becoming at capacity. And so there's never going to be a shortage of support needed by this work, truly. So the way to get involved, you know, the Young Farmers Coalition has one of the most beautiful Instagrams. I am not saying this because I work at Young Farmers. I am telling you, please follow us on Instagram. It is gorgeous. Everything that you would need to know to get involved if you are on social media is Instagram. You can also sign up for a tech service, a phone to action service that we have. That's also on our Instagram to receive policy actions, updates on things. We have a newsletter that you can become a part of that will include opportunities to join fellowships. It will include opportunities for grants, opportunities for employment. The newsletter, it's it's also will advertise Young Farmers publications. The National Young Farmers Survey just came out recently that really informs our policy platform at the federal level. So that would be included there. I think just getting yourself in the know with Young Farmers and we'll do the rest. Like we will just provide you the opportunity. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you are so busy and doing such amazing work. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Yeah, no, it was great. I think we covered a lot in a short time. I appreciate you thinking of me. like to find out more about the National Young Farmers Coalition, go to youngfarmers.org or as Michelle mentioned, check out their amazing Instagram at youngfarmers. Kivira Coalition has spent decades building a network within the regenerative agriculture community and we love to share job, internship, and apprenticeship opportunities with our community through our podcast and our monthly newsletter. Roberts Ranch of Colorado is hiring a grazing manager. This position will operate the Leachman Cattle of Colorado grazing lease on 13,000 acres to improve rangeland health through successful livestock performance and adaptive planned grazing. This position runs mid-May through the end of October with the opportunity for winter employment. To find out more, check out our newsletter. Cabarton Ranch of Idaho is looking for a full-time summer ranch hand, to help with irrigating and fencing for their cow-calf herd and custom grazing operation. Duties include overseeing flood irrigation on 600 acres, general ranch maintenance, assisting with cattle herd health, and assisting with hay production. This position starts mid-April and ends mid-October. To find out more, email kabartonbeef at gmail.com. Colorado Cattlemen's Agricultural Land Trust is hiring for four positions. This includes a grant and data manager, a communications and design manager, a Northwest Regional External Relations Manager, and a conservation manager. To find out more about these positions, visit ccalt.org about. Every month, we include job postings in our monthly newsletter. Visit kiviracoalition.org to sign up. To view a copy of this month's newsletter or any previous ones, visit kiviracoalition.org slash newagrarian slash resources. Have a job opportunity to share yourself? Send it to newagrarian at kiviracoalition.org so we can include it in our next newsletter and podcast.
Thank you for listening to Regeneration Rising, podcast production of the Kavira Coalition. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to talk with us about their experiences. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. Become a Patreon supporter by visiting kaviracoalition.org slash podcasts. We'd also like to thank Kavira staff members, Leah Ritchie, Taryn Dixon, Taylor Mulia, Lynn Whitbeck, and Caroline Caldwell for their contributions to producing this podcast. This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel-Fisher. Wanderlust, our theme music, was made by Scott Buckley. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the land.